Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. I was aware that as long as there is a tiny bit of the root of my grandfather's deeds, this trauma or this guilt in me, it would grow again. Through family, we're bonded for life. When asked, many people would say they die for their family or maybe bury a body for their family. That's how connected we feel to them. And that's why it hurts so much when the ties that bind are broken. We can deal with estrangements, arguments, letdowns and disappointments when it comes to friends. But with family, the pain runs deeper. Because we associate our parents and our siblings with ourselves, we feel they represent us in some way that who they are is in some way reflected in us. So when we discover there's darkness in our family tree, that knowledge can be crippling. We may feel guilt or shame for what they've done, and we may ask, is the same darkness within me? In Angela Finley's stunning book, In My Grandfather's Shadow, which, by the way, reads like a 400-page TED Talk, She uncovers the life of her dead grandfather, a decorated German general, and in doing so explores how trauma can be handed down through generations. I'm delighted to say that Angela is my guest today. Chapter 1. A War of Annihilation The further back you look, the further forward you can see. As we spoke about with Professor Vince Brown in Series 1, Understanding the past is key to making sense of the future. For years, Angela wrestled with a sense of inexplicable guilt. Her quest for answers first led her to work with prisoners, where she taught art, her time behind bars in Germany, and later as arts coordinator to the Kostler Arts Charity, inspired her research into intergenerational trauma. Eventually, this led to the journey she goes on in her book, to relive the past in order to unpack and discover herself. And in her mid-40s, this must have been a very strange feeling indeed, like being reborn into a familiar world as an unfamiliar character. But let's start at the beginning. What was life like for Angela growing up? I have to say, my, my childhood, I used to think always I had the perfect childhood. I just had a very happy, loving, just lovely childhood. and. But there were these little incidents that just began to sow seeds of something, some sort of doubt, some sense of something's not quite right. And the the incident um, I can first think of is when these people came to supper with my parents and they'd be quite sort of, I don't know, quite um, dressed up occasions. And us three little children, my elder sister and my brother and I would stand by the door So we had this rotor where he would open the door, I would take their coats and my sister would hand them a drink of glass of bubbly and then they'd go into the into the living room. But on one occasion, a woman followed me into the room where we put the coats and on the desk was this picture of my German grandfather in full uniform, looking like a full blown Nazi from the war films, as you'd think. And we'd just grown up with that, not really ever thinking anything about it. It was just our dead grandfather. And she came out out completely pale out of the room and just said to her 
her husband, gosh, it's a bit tactless of Yutta to have a photo of a Nazi on her writing desk. So that was the first time where I just thought, okay, Nazi, I knew Nazi from, from the sound of music kind of thing, that was it. But that was, that was all I knew about my grandfather even being related to that kind of thing. And then there were just little moments of um, all the war films growing up. People say around me saying, I hate the Germans or they're being kind of just little insinuations that the Nazis were the, well, they were the epitome of evil, but that the there was no distinction made between the Nazis and the Germans. So people talked more about, I hate the Germans, the Germans are this, the Germans are that. And of course, I was half German, so half of me very quickly became bad in my eyes. Half of me, I just assumed that half of me was was bad. We're very quick to forget that the notion of history being written by the winners is a very real notion and often quite an unhelpful one because it does force interpretations and projections of hatred, guilt, wrath, whatever you want to call it, onto the perceived losers. And we have completely lost sight. And one of the things I picked up from your book is that there were a whole generation of people on the other side of that conflict who had to live not just with the horror of war and the loss of war, but also this projection and imposition of hatred. We rarely talk about that as as a country and as a nation. You mentioned something which I find fascinating. You, You quote President Weissacker saying the secret of reconciliation is remembrance, but how on earth are you supposed to do that when remembering something is so, you know, so deeply difficult? You also quote, and I, I absolutely loved this because it really, really resonated with me. You quote Neil McGregor, formerly of the British Museum, talking about the fact that as a nation, Britain tends to use its history as a source of comfort rather than as a means to progress, you know, to the future. You didn't do that. You've taken this photograph of your grandfather and completely upended pretty much every aspect of your life, trying to search for answers. And we'll come back to all of those things, but can you talk about the moment that you maybe realized that Carl was the answer to whatever you were trying to solve in yourself? Yes, well, um, all you say is that's a really big and important subject, I think, about the winners and the the narratives we tell ourselves. So that was what I was absolutely immersed in. And it was actually in 2005 going to see the film Downfall, which was about Hitler's last days in the bunkers. It was a German film with Bruno Guntz as the acting Hitler and the scenes from it have now been turned into these funny videos that are all over the place but when I saw it it was about the last days in the in the bunker and there were so many um I came away from that film and I cried for four hours I could not stop crying and my the friend I was with um he just went what on earth are you crying about? You know, Hitler's dead, the Second World War's over, the Nazis are beaten. What's there to cry about? And I didn't know. But there was something about seeing the the Wehrmacht officers standing up to Hitler and trying to change the course that he was on, the totally destructive course that was going to annihilate his own people even. And some of them were just taken outside and shot. And 
that's when I went home and I cranked up the desktop and Googled my grandfather's name for the first time. And straight away up came this extraordinary photograph, which was the moment that he is surrendering to the Americans in May 1945. And that that was the beginning. I was then off. I, co I could not believe this. I'd never seen this picture before. And that triggered all my interest. And from then on, it's been 15 years or so <laughs> of uncovering the past. <laughs> it's not just research, though, is it? You literally walked the ground, inhaled the air, put your hands in the earth. That pretty much as far as you can state was the same air, the same earth, the same ground that, that he will have walked. There is an extraordinary passage in the book where you and your mother travel through Russia. You do go to that spot in Italy, um, which is fascinating. And there are so many amazing coincidences of the people that you meet when you, when you, when you travel. But I wanted to ask you about that trip you take with your mother where you have the grandfather's letters and you are literally walking the ground and trying to understand what it was like. You're not just, this is, this would be great endeavor for a writer trying to create a fictional character, but this was a real person that you were related to. You have come from, he is a part of you and you are a part of him. I cannot begin to imagine Angela, what that was like for the two of you, because you get on a train and you just, you just, you know, walk the ground. I mean, that would be, I mean, right now, that would be inconceivable for many reasons, but what was that process like? Gosh, well, it was without doubt one of the most amazing journeys I've ever made in my life with my very diabetic 75-year-old mother traveling by train across Russia with my grandfather's letters. I mean, it took a huge amount of preparation to plot the course that he'd marched in the, the big invasion of Russia. But I knew I had to go there. And my mother just said, right, I'm coming with you. You know, I'll never forget. She didn't really want to come, but she would never forgive herself if something had happened to me and nobody else was going to come on this journey with me. It was just too personal. So it became this incredibly special journey on the one hand of protecting and looking after my mother and on the other just feeling it was like having antennae that are just so super sensitive to to what's going on and the earth felt like it felt it's always felt really important to me to to go to places and to be with the earth and to work with the earth because there's something about the memory being held there a place kind of holds memory so I then get to a place and I just feel I just go very quiet and listen and also trust what comes up and that was where I had to the reason I went to Russia was that I wanted to see see in averted commas but see my grandfather in action at the the top and I put that in inverted commas as well but because he but that was at the top of his game that was one of the pinnacles of his career as an artillerist in Russia and and I just wanted to feel the the world that he had inhabited then and I knew I only knew when I I we went there and we looked around and my mother sort of followed slightly dreamily not really knowing what she was what I was looking for in her father or in myself but she just came with me and 
that was in itself incredibly special. And then eventually I did find this kind of peace, this peace when I, it was almost like the, the veils of reality between the, the past and present just became incredibly thin. It was like peeking through a curtain when I just went to a space and I knew that is where he was. I knew exactly from all the maps and everything. I knew he was there. And that gave some sort of understanding, which was above all what I was setting out to do was to, to just understand, not condone or justify or hate or anything. But it was very, very difficult reading his letters where he quite flippantly talks about the Russians that he's he's killing, the the war, the the I mean, you don't hear anything sort of anti-Semitic, but he's on a war of annihilation, you know, that was the but at the same time he was doing what soldiers do. He was fighting and killing what they're ordered to do, even fighting and killing the enemy. It was just that the cause was so appalling and that made made very very difficult reading at times and made it very difficult with my mother who'd been brought up always to believe well the Wehrmacht were good that was the narrative that was the British narrative that was the general narrative and I was kind of popping that bubble for both for me because that was obviously the narrative I'd grown up with and and for our whole family and yeah so there were multi-layers of difficulties not least travelling in Russia where nobody speaks English, so. Behind the Spine is an attempt to inspire you to write and to shine a light on things that might provide a creative spark for your stories. Now, for the second time, we want to go one stage further. We want to offer you an outlet for your work. Our writing competition is back. In Series 3, we set you a writing challenge based on the lessons we've uncovered on this show, we broadcast the two winning entries at the midpoint of Series 4. This time, we're setting you a new challenge. Over Series 4 and Series 5, we followed the preparation of adventure athlete Kaz Lander, as she and her partner prepared to row unsupported around the coast of Great Britain. Remind yourself of what that challenge might feel like by listening to the two episodes in Series 4 and the bonus episode in Series 5. Then, in no more than a thousand words, try to bring that challenge to life. Two characters, one ocean rowing boat, and the vast coastline of Great Britain. With that backdrop and your own imagination, feel free to go wild. At the end of the series, we'll pick a winner. We'll pay one writer £250 for the right to use their story as part of Series 6. And we'll also donate the same amount to Kaz's chosen cause the Royal Marsden Cancer Charity. But now, back to the show. Chapter 2. A Dangerous Truth We all have stories we tell ourselves to make the world make sense. For Angela's family, they hung on to the idea that her grandfather was unaware, innocent, that he didn't truly know the extent of what was going on during the war and the truth behind the Nazi regime. It's easier that way. But Angela, well, Angela scratched away at all of that, deflating the life boy that held the family afloat for so long. She's put her entire life through the emotional ringer, forced to confront what could have been a deeply unsatisfactory, dangerous and damaging set of conclusions, all in an attempt to uncover the truth. 
What does this do to a person? What does it do to their family? It really is like rocking the boat that you're in and causing big waves and potential real pain in your family by popping these and I wouldn't say they're illusions. I mean, my family were were different from some other German families in that other German families were absolutely adamant sort of there were no Nazis in our family. And and they even though they know that there were my family were they never sort of denied. I don't feel that they were in denial. They just didn't know there was a there was a sort of there was nothing horrible or harsh about it or, or deliberate about it. It was just the way they survived really and I was aware that as long as there is a tiny tiny bit of the root of this my grandfather's deeds this trauma or this guilt in me it would grow again I had to get to the very 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 bottom of it it's a bit like that ground elder which you even if you leave one little root it will grow and spread again so that's why I had to wash out every single area of my life because it impacted every single area of my life. And the, what I wasn't aware of was how insidiously shame had seeped through my whole body and my whole thinking and my whole sense of self. And shame is a very invisible, slippery customer. I think it's one of the deepest emotions that we we embody. And it's got these sort of self-defense mechanisms that prevent you from reaching it. So I had to look at, I had to go through a process of looking at all the facts. It started with the outer world of, you look at the facts and then, then you get down to the emotions and then some facts you avoid and leave till the, till the end or something. And all the time, my emotions, I was trying to feel what everything meant not just not just understand but but feel what everything meant there was also this sense I, I was very aware that nothing that was true could hurt me as much or knowing something that was true nothing could hurt me as much as not knowing had it was the not knowing that had um been so destructive on on my life we'll come back to the personal journey that you were on in terms of discovering why you were the way you are in a minute. But I just want to hang with the aftermath of the war for a moment, because you mentioned the photograph of your grandfather surrendering to the Allies. He was then a prisoner of war for several years. I found those sections extraordinarily difficult to get my head around because there was so much that I was not aware of. Um, which is the whole point of exposing yourself to a book like this, because you think you understand the narrative and you don't. I talked about ideological fanaticism and this notion of ubermenschen that Hitler and his leaders had. There is a un deeply uncomfortable refrain of that with what the Allies did at the end of the war. It was almost as if the categorization of prisoners of war into buckets of evil almost or culpability and the bucket that your grandfather ends up in is one which essentially requires some form of ideological reboot inside him by the Allies, which isn't the same as Uber mentioned, but is kind of not very far from it. Because what I got from that is that 
this notion of victor's justice that you talked about being imposed on people like Carl, your grandfather. I'm not entirely sure what gave, and I'll own this problem, us the right to do that to people like your grandfather. But it kind of does remind me a lot of how closed our memories are in certain things. We're currently reevaluating our perception of the slave trade in this country at the moment. And I think that things like that section in your book where you talk about this, essentially he and all the people that were categorized in the same way as him, they were sentenced for, you know, 10 years, essential ideological reboot through hard labor and exposure to, you know, allies, ideology and all of that. That doesn't get taught in schools. I guarantee you that. I guarantee you that. So to, to explore that is extraordinary. There is so much written about the war, a subject that I think I know very well, but I probably only know it from movies because in movie land, Nazis are the ultimate bad guy and they keep delivering stories day in, day out. So we don't understand the thing that we think we understand more than anything else. The work that you've done outside of this book, but with um, trying to use art to help prisoners who are incarcerated in, in present day, really kind of brought those two aspects of your life together for me, because there is a sense that you really relate to your grandfather as a prisoner of war because of your exposure to people who are in incarceration. You must have learned so many things that you've probably, you know, you probably can't, rem can't remember what you started out knowing and what you've kind of learned along the way. But I don't think it is well known that the Allies tried to impose a brand new ideology on prisoners of war. Is that fair? I think, I mean, the Allies, it sort of fell into the category of denazification, yeah. where they tried to re-educate people on a on all sorts of different levels, on a political level and a, a social level, and that, that just tried to change them back or into Democrats. That's what they were trying to do. Um, and Britain, and we've done that all over the world in many ways. We've, we've really believed and still to a degree do believe that our way is right. And I think what I've tried to do, well, I was first of all completely shocked also uncovering all this German history post-war and during the war, but above all the sort of the post-war process, nobody knows about it. Nobody knows that the the biggest mass migration or forced expulsion of people was the Germans, the 14 million Germans after the war, that the biggest mass rape in history yeah. was the Germans after the war. This was shocking. And these were the people that my relatives were part of. These are my people in, in such way. And we don't know about it because we like to hold on to that narrative that we are the the goodies and they were the baddies that we were the uh, they were the perpetrators and we were the victims on in one level but the germans were massive victims as well but it's very difficult to talk about that which is why it hasn't been talked about even in germany for until the last sort of just 20 years or something that it's so Yes, I think I think this the slight superiority from from the British or this lack of nuance, this really black white way of thinking, guilty, innocent. There's no room then for contradiction and uncertainty and searching and exploration, which is what I'm trying to do in the in the book. Take the reader with me as I explore and uncover and learn these these sort of shocking facts. Chapter 3, 
generational trauma. Bearing the guilt of our ancestors may seem counterintuitive. Why should we feel burdened by what they did? It wasn't us. On a country level, maybe it makes more sense because the legacy of the past still haunts the present. There's no way to heal the present without taking responsibility for the actions of our forebears. But it's harder to understand this guilt on a personal level. Why should the granddaughter of a German general in World War II feel shame when she didn't even exist in that timeline? The burden of both bearing and communicating the grief of a forebear will fall on one child within a family. A quote from Angela's book that I feel summarises her entire quest. The moment when she gains the validation and answers she was looking for. It speaks to this notion of inherited or generational trauma. But what is it exactly? And how can it hold any power? It's very difficult to explain because it's very... For a start, it's quite contested by the scientific world. So even though they're now sort of exploring it on a genetic level, how trauma might change a gene, but that's not what my book is about. It's more about this emotional inheritance. And there have been all sorts of different names for it, from post-memory to um, symbiotic entanglement. And you've got the whole dynamics of trauma are basically about silencing something about avoiding it about um contain it trying to contain an experience that's too traumatic to revisit and process and in my sort of through my artistic eyes I see it quite visually that if you push something down if you literally suppress something it's going to squelch out somewhere else it's got to come out it's like air in water it's got to bubble up somewhere And I think by the nature of my birth, which was a week before my grandfather died, that was a really potent time of birth and death coming together. And I think I was the child that that carried this because my mother would have, her thoughts would have been very full um, full of her father. But also I always had as a little girl already, I had this vision of my grandfather going up towards what I thought heaven and I was coming down onto the earth and as we crossed he passed me a baton like in a relay race and if this isn't a I had that picture I've had it since I remember being alive and I think that is an exact picture of of this inherited trauma or inherit anything that it doesn't have to be trauma it can be any unresolved issue an unresolved crime an unresolved emotion that then seeks resolution that's I think it's some sort of hidden law of life that things seek equilibrium they seek healing they see our bodies try to heal quite naturally without even our intervention and I think that's what we do on various various levels because trauma is so so much it lives in the body a lot it isn't a sort of cerebral thing that you can kind of think your way through and work out and then leave it's it's a much more visceral experience and your body reacts in strange ways and it was these reactions that often are the alert they can alert people to the fact that they are carrying something that isn't their own and they might try and like I did suppress them through through addictions or through um risk taking or unhealthy relationships or whatever 
it was. Um, those were all my ways of escape from this thing that was was in me, this presence that I I felt inside me that wasn't my own. It is a very new subject in some ways, and yet it's also as old as the, the Bible talks about the sins of the father being passed on and their children will eat sour grapes and things like that. So I think when you think about the cycle of life, it's kind of we inherited, we inherit eye colour and hair colour and skin types and things. And why might we not inherit some of the structures of our parental or grandparental lives really their ex their experiences it certainly stands up to a, a, you know a very cursory sniff test in terms of does this make sense well yes absolutely it, it, it makes sense and i hope that the science proves that we can help more people through this you talk at the end of the book about talks that you've given about the process that you've gone through to try and bring your grandfather back to life and how many people have been helped by that, even though it's not their story. It essentially is their story, just different names, you know, different dates, etc. There's one moment in the book that I'd like to end with because it's the most extraordinary chapter. It's quite early on. It's chapter eight where you talk about being visited by somebody sent by Maori elders to try and help you. And it is, for me, the moment at which the entire book turns in that this whole exploration of Carl and who he is and this whole notion of perhaps anxiety and trauma being trapped in reproductive vessels and, and organs in the human body. You, later on, there's, a, there's an experiment with laboratory mice being exposed to cherry blossom and then electric shock and then their offspring having the same reaction without the electric shock when exposed to cherry blossom. You know, it kind of all makes sense, but it's a deeply mystical and magical moment where you meet this gentleman could you just tell us a bit about that yes it was um this was way before I even knew about my grandfather I mean it was it was I I was still in the immersed in my sort of struggles with with myself and I, I was very open to trying all sorts of alternative um alternative things and music and dance and art and everything I was interested in in those anyway but then this um this man sort of appeared at a, a friend's house and he said he was he'd been sent by the Maoris to to heal people or to spread spread their philosophy or wisdom wisdom and we did this, we did the ceremony with kind of clay, kneading clay in our hands. And all the while he was, he was talking to me very, very, very gently. And it was almost like going into a little bit of a, a trance with him. I was, even I was sort of a little sceptical of him, but, but I just went with it. And he talked so softly that I think something like my defences went down and he just, he talked so, so deeply and I just felt myself going deeper and deeper and deeper into my myself. And and at the end, he just says something like there's um, maybe I can just read the line. It's um, there's a memory cell set deep in the waters of your etheric. It has been passed from generation to generation like a gene waiting to be talked about and let go. And I think this was an extraordinary, of course, I'd never heard of epigenetics then at the time. And, and so, but I always remembered that because he, he did touch me very, very deeply. It was like he just touched my wound or acknowledged, 
acknowledge this wound. And I think just to say that I think the intuition, the images you get, dreams you have, the feelings you have in places or that you get from people, I took notice of all of those and they were really what led me to uncovering what was wrong with me, taking them seriously because I also sat in psychologist's chair and, you know, tried it via the head, trying to, sort of to understand in that way. And there, there was no way it was, it, again, it was sort of in my body, in the visual, in the arts, in the visceral. That was where, where every, all of this, the whole story really, really resides. If you're listening to this episode on the day of release, then In My Grandfather's Shadow by Angela Findlay is out tomorrow. It is in every way of the definition of the word extraordinary. It has made me think about so many things from my own grandparents to my own understanding of the war and what happened and the projection of Victor's justice onto the opposition. It's written about a time 50, 60, 70 years ago, but it feels astonishingly prescient and fresh and modern and it should be on everybody's bookshelves. Angela Finley, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure too. Conclusion. A massive thank you then to Angela Finley, not just for her stunning book, but also for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? Explore your family heritage. Learn about your roots and your forebears. It may help you uncover more about yourself. It may serve as a source of inspiration for your writing, and it might lead you on the most meaningful journey of your life. Places often hold memories of the past. If you're struggling to feel or describe a place in your work, don't just look at pictures. Walk the earth. Visit that location and take inspiration from what you feel. And finally, the terms good and bad are too binary, even in war. People are rarely pure evil, and good people can do terrible things. This is important to remember when writing the hero and villain of your story. Narrative dictates how we view what's right and wrong. Make sure you view life from all perspectives. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Also, sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our new exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. These events are not recorded and not repeated and they're designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now, stay safe, and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.